Welcome to Conversations in Equine Science. My name is Kate Acton and I'm joined by Nancy McLean. And this is the podcast where we take equine research and try and make it accessible to horse owners and enthusiasts alike. Remember that with each topic we discuss, it's important to get professional advice before implementing any of the strategies. This week, Kate and I are discussing a paper uh, titled Pituitary Pars Intermedia Dysfunction in Horses. And pituitary pars intermedia dysfunction, we often refer to as PPID. This is by Naomi C. Kirkwood et al. And it's a 2022 paper. And it was kind of an overview of where research has taken us to this point. Um, in the diagnosis and management of PPID. So it's pituitary pars intermediate dysfunction is the most common endocrine disease of geriatric horses. It affects their quality of life, their immunocompetence, and athletic performance. Clinical signs of PPID can include hypertrichosis are a long hair coat, muscle atrophy, a pendulous abdomen, recurrent infections, lethargy, lameness, polydipsia, and polyuria, polyuria, I should say, drinking and urinating more than normal, and uh, being just aware of this endocrine disease Uh, such as PPID, has increased in recent years. And some people still call it Cushing's in horses. A lot of times they'll say, oh, my horse has Cushing's, or that horse looks Cushing's. So the purpose of this article is just to review the current literature and to provide vets access to current perspectives uh, for treatment and management. So I thought this would be a good one because I have a 22-year-old mare that um, had a somewhat elevated ACTH during the rise. Now, your ACTH has a certain period of time from usually late summer or like mid-July to December where that ACTH will be unusually higher than at other times of the year. Now, a PPID horse will even be higher than that. So, um, and that is one of the diagnostics they use is ACTH. They also think there might be, um, you know, other ways to diagnosis, but you can certainly look at the horses and see the long hair coat, the muscle wastage. Uh, Sometimes they have this uh, hay belly look to them as well. So, um, Kate, have you had any experience with PPID horses? Um, Not personally and not in any kinds of long-term nursing treatment where I've been involved on the case, but I have seen them in practice. And as you said, Nancy, it's the most common endocrine disorder for geriatric horses So it affects 20 to 25% of horses over the age of 15 years. 
And in recent years, awareness of PPIZ among horse owners has really started to take off um, and awareness more so around veterinarians as well. So this increases testing and it increases diagnosis and it's improving treatments. But another thing it's doing is it's driving research as well, which is really great because in the past there was very limited aspects that we knew about PPIZ and you know it's something that we'll discuss when we talk about this paper but PPIZ doesn't follow the exact same clinical signs in each horse and it doesn't behave the exact same way you know some horses will have certain clinical signs some horses suffer laminitis some horses don't as a part of it so it is a little bit tricky but it's something that we need to look out for in our aging horses. And I think anyone who has that idea of when we used to call it Cushing's, mm-hmm. it just immediately always brings to mind kind of like a Shetland looking pony that has that really thick, wavy coat developed. Um, and one of the things that I would always say when I talk to students about PPIZ is to try and think of intuitive ways to find clinical signs. And what I mean by that is where we see delayed shedding, for instance. So this long hair coat and this kind of shaggy wavy coat is a clinical sign of PPID. But one of the earlier signs we can see is that the horse has delayed shedding. So when I talk to nurses about how you would figure that out when you're only seeing this horse today or you're only talking to this owner today is to ask specific questions and try and actually get a history and um, that's a little bit more holistic so for that one we would ask you know do you regularly clip and then sometimes you'd have an owner say you know normally I clip um just the once but I found I've had to clip three times this year or I've had to clip twice or there's been some increase in the actual maintenance of the coat or the owner will report changes. Like even if they are minute, owners tend to pick up when it comes to coat quite well. But another one is um, lethargy. Like lethargy is so difficult to determine. Like horses love to rest and to amble around in the field. Um, But seeing if their exercise intolerance has crept up you know are they as willing to do certain um schooling work if they're in a school or you know are they starting to fall back when they're out on a trail ride kind of dragging their feet less less kind of pick up and go in them that can be a good sign that they're feeling a little bit more lethargic I mean it can also be behavioral too so you know we have to take everything um together but it's trying to be creative about how you notice these signs that I think is important in coming up with that identification that clinical signs are present. Yeah. And I thought it was so interesting too, that this has been, um, I think first described in 1932, but back in the nineties, we were always told that it was caused by a tumor in the pituitary. Well, now, um, It could be a tumor, but more than likely, since it seems to affect geriatric horses, it's more that the dopamine receptors in the hypothalamus that get 
get those neurons or those impulses from the pituitary are actually going bad or they're just wearing out from age. So when you look at it that way, it kind of makes me feel like, okay, this is just part of the aging process that some horses get and we have to manage them a little different. Like we do all our senior horses. They each have different little management um, idiosyncrasies that we pick up on and and they need to have. So um, that made me feel better about it with Mary that, okay, maybe it's just her receptors are wearing out. And uh, she does take the Pergo Glide and the Prescend. And that seems to have really brought down her ACTH to almost normal um, limits. It's borderline normal. And then also the hair coat is slightly better, not totally better. So um, she will be getting uh, shaved again or body clipped um, when someone sets in. But it's not like, um, you know, I've known a lot of PPID horses. And like Kate says, they're all different. They all have different requirements. And we just have to go with that. I think um, another important point you touched on is you were talking about how um, you obviously Mary's on treatment for her PPID. It's not a curable disease. So I think Nancy said it really well, like of those receptors just wearing out, like it's a degeneration with old age. So when we do treat them, we can maintain and we can create an improvement, but we're not going to cure. So we're looking to improve clinical signs um, and try and maintain. But once they're on treatment, that's lifelong. So the management from the owner's point of view um, is something that I think is really vital and probably something we need to do some more research into too because it is quite a consideration you know to have to medicate ongoing for the rest of that horse's life yeah and I thought it was interesting when they talked about the one study where they had five horses um, each from these groups, five horses that were young, five that were aged, and five that had PPID. And only the PPID horses um, had alpha synuclein fibrils, and the other horses did not. And interestingly enough, those um, fibrils were, um, they're like I don't know, we, we called them in, um, oh, the dementia studies, they were called Lewy bodies, and they see them in Alzheimer's as well. So they're a type of protein buildup. And I think it's so interesting that in human uh, diseases, such as Parkinson's, those dopamine neurons also show the alpha synuclein as well. Um, that are not in people that aren't experiencing Parkinson's or dementia and all that. So it is, I think, very much an aging disorder. Um, I think it's, yeah, because the body slows down in so many ways with age and the ability to just 
clear out and replenish is greatly reduced. So that would make sense when they end up getting that protein buildup. It's the same way, you know, that once the kidneys stop working as effectively, then we start to get um, more metabolite buildup in the blood and in the body. So it is it is one of those unfortunate things with horses getting older. Um, I think it is kind of promising, though, that 20 to 25 percent is still a huge number but it's not um it's not an overwhelming amount of horses that get it and i think considering there's still so much we can learn about it we've got a pretty good management uh routine in place one of the things that i'd mentioned actually one of the clinical signs laminitis um when that occurs in ppiz that's another area that's just poorly understood so when it comes to this disease, because it manifests, I suppose you could say in different ways, like it's it's the same elevations in ACTH and the same, um, we would see the same results blood-wise, but clinical symptoms can be variable. But the laminitis can occur due to a coexisting hyperinsulinemia. Or it can occur for other reasons, or some horses just don't get laminitis with it at all. It is the second most prevalent finding. So in horses and ponies with PPID, um, it's often the first thing owners will notice that makes them go and get veterinary um, attention is laminitis. So it's important to keep that in mind. You were saying to me before, Nancy, though, that you find Mary isn't one to suffer with laminitis with her PPID. No, um, she, you know, we really kind of watch her carbohydrate load, like the non-structural, but, you know, she goes out on pasture with the others. I try to maintain her normal routine. Um, when frost has been on the grass, my whole herd gets a little less turnout, maybe a little more controlled exercise that day. But um, her feet, you know, have no rings in them and or anything like that. Now I do trim her myself and I keep her toe back and keep her foot under her where there's not so much leverage. And, um, you know, but she just has never had any lameness issues uh, associated with her PPID, at least not yet. And so, um, you know, you just got to keep a handle on those clinical signs and what could happen. So when you might see them beginning to uh, come about, you can take action. And mm-hmm. I think that's where the the pictures that this paper had, and this is open access, the pictures that they had are really well done uh, before Pergoglide and after. Yes. And also the um, management that what we can do as owners. One thing I do have to do with Mary is keep her on a strict deworming program and also do fecal egg counts routinely with her because she is one that um, seems to get higher egg counts and the others do not. So Uh, And we do all the proper pasture protocols with the manure and then dragging the pastures and and all that. Um, 
interestingly enough, they said suspensory ligament degeneration is also um, evident in horses with PPID and not all horses, but some. And Mary had the flexural deformity as a foal. So she had her check ligaments cut and um, she had uh, two incisions, each front leg. Supposedly she was in full leg cast up until six months of age. Now this horse was well-bred to be a racehorse. And of course, she didn't even start one race. And I got her as a pasture pet for Greta. And, um, you know, she has not had any issues um, with that suspensory ligament. But, you know, I always keep, she's the reason I went into hoof care and how to trim and maintain hooves because of her suspensory ligament surgeries and I've had her since she was two and she's 22 now so um you know I keep an eye on welling up those ligaments and any heat and just good management I mean we do that with all our horses you feel for um, heat um, especially if you're riding them And, and Mary has been a riding horse and uh you know, I believe in exercise. I believe horses need to move and to have turnout and be used as long as they can do it without pain. And so far, so good with her. And, um, you know, so luckily, and I thought it was interesting in this article, they said that lameness is less common in the older horses diagnosed with this. Now, I don't know what their... Um, line of demarcation was in the age groups, but we're talking uh, 15 years and older and Mary's 22. So I would assume she'd be one of the older PPID horses. Mm -hmm. And you made a really good point, Nancy, about the treatment of Paraglide and the pictures that are in this that I just wanted to touch on. So it is open access and we can put the link on our homepage, can't we, for this one? Yes, yeah. Because I, the pictures on the left, I think that creeps up over time. So, like, the, for instance, if we just take the top horse, um, they have kind of a very dull, muted brown coat. And I think that would have happened so gradually, it might be hard to actually have noticed that. But one month on the medication, you can see a massive change to the coat. And then six months on, it's like an entirely different horse. So I think that's a really great visual for people to look at. And it's the same with the horse down at the bottom as well. Um, Because I think any of these things that are kind of slower, I guess, chronic, um, they can sneak up on us and we don't always notice. And that's probably why laminitis ends up being one of the first ones. But when it comes to what you were saying about Mary, I think as well, like it would be interesting to see. So if they said like the older horses that are diagnosed had less lameness than the younger, if they're all over 15, then what I'm thinking probably isn't applicable, but I wonder how exercise plays a role over time. Like, we know in humans to exercise and just in very simple terms, if you lift heavy things, you'll live longer is what the research is telling us. 
So that's why, you know, they recommend cardio is really good for weight management and for cardiovascular health. But for your bones, your muscles and your heart lifting, actually doing weight training. So exercising horses is going to help them. It's going to create a healthier lifestyle for them as well if you're doing it correctly. And as Nancy said, doing it in a way where pain doesn't occur. But I wonder what like what role exercise plays in those age groups that they had as well. Were those older horses by chance ones that were like ex-working horses or ex-racers or horses that had done a lot of exercise in their formative years that would have really developed that muscle mass and that bone density? Yeah, I don't know. Um, that would be a good research project is to do a you know a study on exercise and its effect on PPID because I feel like you do Kate I mean there have been type 2 diabetics that once they started exercising and watching their diet their diabetes disappears so Mm -hmm. I wonder with the PPID if uh, exercise good circulation good muscle uh, use and even just getting that glucose out of the bloodstream through muscle flexion would help with, especially with the hyperinsulinemia, you know, so um, it, that'd be a great study to do. But um, I just think that one thing with the Pergo Glide, there is a side effect that horses maybe don't have an appetite. It's called the veil, the pergoglide veil. And um, we do experience that periodically with her. So I did get a paper from Catherine McGowan, who uh, when we were at Edinburgh, uh, we read a lot of her nutrition research. And she describes how you can back off that pergoglide, um, maybe even by half and then reintroduce it and the horse should start eating again. And that is exactly what I did. And, and that's exactly what happened. If I just cut the dose in half and then feed, um, she will eat. So, and then I slowly build it back up to her regular dosage again. So if there's a lot of uh, good information out there, but make sure it's from peer-reviewed research. And if you have questions, in this paper, it talks about uh, Prescend, which is the tablet form of Pergoglide. If if they get that uh, dose every 24 hours, there is a um, point in time where you may be able to do half and 12 hour later, the other half. Well, before you make that change, check with the pharmaceutical company or your veterinarian, because I do think there needs to be more research. My vet is pretty much set that no, you've got to give the dose every 24 hours and at the same time of day. So that's what I do. That's what I go with. But I'll be interested to see if they do have further research that comes out that says you can do uh, a dose in the morning, a half dose, and then another half dose at night, because that might do away with that veil effect. 
And it's very difficult when you're dealing with older horses, you're looking at quality of life. Yeah. And if they're not eating, I mean, it has so many knock on effects that we know are detrimental. Like if there's not enough food in that gut, they're more likely to suffer colics um, and into susceptions and things like that, where the gut kind of goes inside itself. Really, really problematic not to have food flowing through a horse at all times. And you feel- but for their happiness and their enrichment, it plays such a role in their actual environmental enrichment and behavior that I think there has to be some leeway where oh. we weigh up the pros and cons. I agree totally. I just I don't like to see her um, not looking forward to her her meals. She's an eater and she's always been. Uh, a big girl that looks forward to her meals and all that. So I, it is important to look at quality of life. And uh, so anyway, I had to sacrifice giving the full dose and then build her back up. And it works out just fine. And we probably go through that three times a year with the Pergo Glide. And, um, you know, we just back off and build back up again. And eventually she start eating again but uh, you can't even try to entice her with sweets because you're then defeating that purpose of the low non-structural carbohydrate you know so it's kind of like um, it's tough to do and she won't even eat a carrot you know she you can offer a cookie and she's all about it but that's not in her best <laughs> So, and I can understand that, but anyway, um, take a look at this paper. I just loved it with, especially the management. And the one thing was the vitamin B12 deficiency theory that um, some of these PPID horses were deficient in B12. Now, I never heard that before. And so I thought that's definitely something else I'm going to check out. And it seems to be true for humans with Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease and humans that have Cushing's disease as well. So uh, there's something else. And Kate told me before we came on that that would be kind of a safe vitamin to experiment with. So I I might look into more on that topic and, and see if yeah. that might be, or maybe they're old and they can't absorb that vitamin regardless of how much you feed them. So um, there's a lot. I'll put the caveat that safe as far as I know. And <laughs> yeah. um, so Vitamin B is what we call a water soluble. Um, what well, I say vitamins, I'm saying vitamin now, Nancy. <laughs> it's a water soluble vitamin, which means in in theory we just excrete it if we have too much in our urine. The only time you have to be careful with that is um in older animals or animals that have a decreased kidney function you can get into a little bit of trouble with um, their excretion capabilities and their um, or their excretion rates, I guess. With these guys, because they have PUPD, we call it, so polyuria, polydipsia, and that's polyuria where they um, urinate frequently and polydipsia where they drink a lot. I think they would manage to flush it out okay, but I'm, I'm definitely not an expert 
on that one. Um, but it would be interesting to see what effect it would have if you included that kind of supplement into Mary's diet. Yeah, I might think about that because in, it might be an absorption issue, you know, but I'll definitely do a ration calculation and see if she might be short on that. And then also, I just wanted to add about the TRH stimulation test, that that their thinking is one of the most accurate diagnostic tests, especially in early disease. And, um, you know, the whole thing is a lot of countries don't have that commercially available, but um, it is good because the earlier you can detect the disease, then I think the more improved the quality of life will be. So mm -hmm. that's something to keep an eye out and ask your vet about. Just the last point that I had for this one is that in these horses, their immune function is altered. So they can have a problem with worm burdens and they can have an increased um, burden when it comes to worms. So you may have to change your worming protocol but you should definitely be doing your fecal egg counts with these horses. So check them more regularly and you can drop a fecal sample into your vest and they'll do that fecal egg count for you. And then they can come up with the protocol for you. And yeah. um, there's a lot in this. So don't be afraid to A, take it in, in chunks. If your horse is diagnosed with PPID, you don't have to try and implement every possible management at once sometimes you will be given all the options by your vet and everything that you should do but we need to ease ourselves into it to make sure that we stay compliant if we're not compliant then their health management is going to suffer and for us to be compliant sometimes that means we take a step back okay let me just get to grips with the medication for the first couple of weeks let me just get that organized get that down and then once I'm comfortable I'm in a routine with the medication let's start those fecal egg counts and change the worming protocol don't feel like you need to take it I just think it can be quite overwhelming so don't feel like you need to take everything and hit the road running the next day if you feel like you can absolutely brilliant but it is a management thing it's a lifelong disease and it's something that we're going to have to very finely balance between what is possible for us to implement and what treatment is available to us. And then, as me and Nancy have mentioned, the quality of life of the horse is the most important thing. So we need to make sure our management is sufficient for them to have a good quality of life. Absolutely. Well said, Kate. This was a great paper and I'll definitely put the link up and um, any questions or any comments. Uh, we've got that availability at the end of every podcast where you're able to uh, click on the um, question to be able to answer anything about the podcast episode. That's on the anchor homepage, isn't it? Yes. Yep. And I think at the end of the recording, if you listen via Anchor or Spotify, you're able to, to see that question automatically. Brilliant. I think that's everything I had for this week. Okay. And for me too. And uh, thank you to Yvette for uh, wanting 
this paper done and uh, any other research requests, just uh, shout out to Cateri and we'll look into it and come up with a good episode. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Nancy. Take care. You too, Kate. Thank you. Bye-bye.